welcome to episode 128 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, our review of the championship race in Phoenix, asking what mattered and what, if anything, JGR did wrong. That, plus our final requiems and fixes for the year, where we find room for improvement, even for title winner himself, Kyle Larson. But first, as always, we start with a quick look back. On the time Mark Martin drove the number 28 car for Ernie Irvin in the 1994 Food City 250 in the Bush Grand National Series. David, this was a moment I did not remember. Of course, I remember the circumstances. Irvin was injured in a crash at Michigan. I remember the fill-ins on the cup side of things. But at Bristol, Mark Martin moved from his normal number 60 Winn-Dixie car to the 28. And uh, I hope you will tell us why. Uh, yeah, well, this, this actually does stick in my memory because I was, uh, alive and and present for this (laughs) and, and paying attention. And, uh, it was Mark Martin in a yellow fire suit doing un Mark Martin like things. Uh, but how it came to be Ernie Irvin owned this car and he entered the car into the Bush series race uh, at Bristol, which was only a week later after the, uh, the injury in Michigan. And instead of pulling the car off of the entry list, Irvin's team uh, decided to go for it. Mark Martin volunteered to drive on behalf of his injured friend, but Alan, he was also looking for a little bit of redemption because earlier in the year, <laughs> Mark Martin dominated the Bristol Spring Race in the Bush Series, leading 195 of 250 laps. He was the leader at the precise moment the caution flag dropped with three laps to go. There was no overtime in those days. If the race ended under caution, then so be it. So he was poised to win. All he had to do was take the checkered flag under caution. Alan, tell me what happened. He pulled in the pits for reasons I still don't understand. <laughs> and for reasons he doesn't understand. I think As he thought the leader. It, he thought the white flag was the checkered flag. I think that is ultimately what went down. So it, it handed the win to David Green, who naturally, uh, that was the only lap that he led all afternoon. He won Bristol. So... Martin here uh, in August of 94, looking to redeem himself in this specific race, he brought with him his usual spotter, Jack Roush, hmm. and they were aiming for a victory in Ernie's car, in Ernie's honor, you know, to do right by the man himself. It did not go as planned. <laughs> Mark Martin qualified 17th. He would go on to finish 10th, but in the uh, in between, Martin hated literally every second of it (laughs) early in the race. He was as sideways as you can be without actually wrecking the car. And and that's kind of a rare sight. If you ever remember watching Mark Martin, he drove a tight race car, the car. I mean, he never really turned a bad wheel. And that's one of the things that I never really understood. I mean, people would like applaud, I don't know, Greg Biffle for getting sideways or something and, and, and touting his car control world. I think Mark Martin's car control was plenty fine because he never wavered, but here he did in this race. Absolutely is not known for driving loose race cars. And, uh, and he wasn't happy about it. He radioed to his crew, but he was speaking to Ernie and spirit when he said this, Ernie, now I know why I outrun you every weekend. This car is a handful. (laughs) 
Yeah, good stuff. Meanwhile, Kenny Wallace ended up winning this race. He led the final 86 laps. It was one of nine career victories for him in the Bush slash Xfinity series. And the win capped a great week for Kenny Wallace because that week he was also tapped to be the interim driver of the number 28 cup car that Ernie drove for Robert Yates Racing. So this specific Bristol race in August of 94, for me, it was entirely about the 28 car. Memorable for me seeing Mark Martin uh, at that point in time drive for someone other than Roush, frankly, is, is what was so jarring about it. Uh, someone other than Roush racing in a NASCAR race, I should say. That captured my imagination. Very cool. I just learned a lot. Again, something I did not remember. Of course, uh, I remember the unfortunate circumstances for Irvin. I remember, again, we were what, 11, 12 years old. You were a little bit, yeah. probably a little younger and didn't have many convictions back then, right? Beliefs, like no politics back then as kids. But I remember when Lake Speed didn't get the 28 car, even though he filled in and then didn't get it full time. I felt very strongly about that. I don't know why I had such like a, a strong opinion. I was like, Lake Speed got screwed. Like that was my opinion as an 11, 12 year old for some reason. And I just remember that strongly. That was, uh, I, I, I don't know that for some reason that still stands out and still uh, kind of ticks me off. I, I don't know why, but that day, David, mm-hmm. yeah. Kenny Wallace, Ken Schrader, Dick Trickle, all in the top 10 in that Bush race at Bristol. So uh, a big day for the Midwest short trackers. Yeah. And, and Lake Speed took over after Davey Allison passed yeah. away. Oh, yeah. So this, this would have been a year later. Uh, and it was, uh, it was around that time where, uh, uh, Kenny Wallace had already been in the car. I think he was qualifying for Darlington or had already qualified. And I was at the racetrack and, uh, with my family and and we saw Larry McReynolds and uh-huh. my 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 dad knew Larry a little bit from his days working with Davey Allison and I I said hey great run for you so it, it might have been a qualifying I said hey great run for Kenny today and Larry's like yeah we're proud of him and um you know under the circumstances I think they were just looking for a win and and they did have it for a little bit um but here on on this night this was Ernie's team. And uh, Mark Martin did try to do right by them. It just came up short. Good stuff. Learned a lot. Episode 128 of Positive Regression. Off to a good start. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. So let's get to it. The season, sadly, over for NASCAR. We have come and gone with Phoenix and the championship. Kyle Larson hoisting the trophy after win number 10 on the season. 
I don't want to brag, but I got it right in my prediction. David did not. Anyway, uh, David, we're going to look back on the Phoenix race because uh, it, it's important to, because it, it all comes down to the one race and winning that one race, succeeding in that one race makes you a champion. So it's important to dissect some of these things and look back at least some points when we do this podcast. So let's look back, David. What mattered in this race? It did seem like an entire season, an entire championship came down to maybe the final pit stop. Is is that fair? Is that the only thing that mattered? How do you see what happened in Phoenix? Well, it, yeah, I, I think that that is fair. It, it occurred to me while writing my Sunday column for NBC Sports just how close all four of these teams were to one another. In fact, if you saw the Motorsports Analytics Twitter account, at any point over last weekend, it tweeted out graphics featuring specific strengths of each of the championship four drivers this season on 750 tracks. Mm-hmm. And each of them had at least one second place ranking in some metric related to 750 tracks. So when I wrote this preview, I went all in on pit stops, which is something that I rarely do. and. And restarts, thinking that these four are so close. This is going to come down to some isolated moment that decides the championship. And to a T, Kyle Larson's pit crew delivering a sub 12 second stop in advance of that final restart made everything that I wrote come to fruition. Uh, and, and in essence, this race played out as it should have on paper because coming into the race, Larson's pit crew had the fastest median four tire box time among the four teams that came to the surface at the end of the race. And that's what flipped it for him. And mind you, Alan, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, folks are going to look back on this as a season for the ages and they'd be right 10 wins and a championship but that is going to artfully overlook the fact that in this championship race cliff daniels made some weird choices and kyle larson wasn't especially good relative to the standard that he set for himself i I certainly would not have pegged him for having the worst pass efficiency among the four championship four drivers it wasn't Uh, a quintessential Larson showing, but a a win is a win. A championship is a championship. And then uh, Daniels fair to say that he whiffed a lot on some of Larson's long run setup Uh, by his own admission. After the race, he said that the car was at its most terrible right around the halfway point. And it was just adjustment after adjustment after adjustment Uh, The car was clearly geared for short runs, but even then, Chase Elliott had him covered there. So uh, there was a lot not right with their approach to the race. And with around 35 laps to go, I I, I think it was effectively over for Larson, his chances at winning. And then the caution hits, the script got flipped uh, or righted if you're a Larson fan. I think this race was a a nice reminder that, again, auto racing is a team sport disguised as an individual endeavor. The best 
most productive driver all season long in the cup series did win the championship. He's absolutely deserving, but it was another component of the team. Uh, and, and it just happened to be the pit crew that clinched it for him. Fourth to first on that final pit stop, at least fourth among the championship four to first and getting him out front. Uh, Kyle Petty put it really well. I don't know if you saw the post-race coverage, David, but he said his pit crew gave him the pole for a 25-lap feature. Now, if that sounds familiar to any dirt racing fan, you know Kyle Larson has won plenty of 25-lap dirt racing features, probably from the pole in his lifetime, and that's essentially what he had to do because of what his team gave him. Uh, almost set it up perfectly for him. It was like an unassisted layup at the end. Yeah, and it, and it fit Larson's strong suit when it comes to restarting it's restarts from the front row in clean air there are uh, only a few I think only Truex is better at actually retaining a position but if he had the position and control of that restart over Truex that's the situation and and, and if you go back and watch those restarts we've talked about this th- this restart dynamic at Phoenix in the past there are cars going everywhere and it looks exciting. I mean, it really does look like something. I think Pocono has this uh, to an extent as well. But the positions changing hands are fairly minimal. It's not easy to overtake. So if Larson has nobody to overtake and he's simply defending, that's the most advantageous position. So yeah, to to, to that end, a, a pole for a final run is as good as it gets. Uh, speaks to the volumes of the impact of the pit crew. And uh, the benefit of actually going out and qualifying and winning the pole and earning the uh, the P1 spot on pit road, which uh, Daniels in his post race believed was uh, instrumental to all that. It all mattered. You mentioned the short run setup by Hendrick that won the race, and we saw that uh, benefit both Chase Elliott and Kyle Larson throughout the run. Uh, JGR not set up for as much of a short run, much better on the longer run. So natural question, obviously, is did JGR get it wrong? Did, did they, I mean, the results say one thing, but was that, uh, do they have some sort of blame on them for getting it wrong? Before you answer that, David, I, I did do a little research. <laughs> it's not, uh, it doesn't go too far back, but I just went back to the last four. I, this is, these are numbers from the last four Phoenix races in terms, all the way back to spring 2020. Uh, with runs, I broke down runs of 25 laps or less or 40 or more. Get where I'm going with this? Yeah. Spring 2020, nine runs of 25 laps or less. Three runs of 40 plus. Fall 2020, the Chase Elliott Championship race. Only one run of 25 laps or less. Three runs, 40 plus. Spring 2021, earlier this year, where Martin Truex won. Five runs of 25 laps or less. Two of 40 plus. And then what we saw on Sunday... Five runs of 25 laps or less, three of 40 plus. So I'm giving you those numbers to maybe if you're looking for any trends or anything, recent trends about what do we see normally at Phoenix? 40 plus, super long or 25 or less, super short, if you will. Uh, You know, it seems to be trending toward the short run, which would say maybe you should set up for a short run car. It's clear JGR did not. Was that a mistake in hindsight? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that the the trends informed their decision making here, but ultimately, no. I, I think that setting up for the long run is the thing that kept them in this. Hmm. If we could 
pinpoint an underlying strength of JGR over maybe the last two decades, it is an indomitable desire and wherewithal to outspend the competition. And in a year where they can't do that and they are disadvantaged and that disadvantage isn't changing based on parts restrictions and time spent on R&D that that were put in, in place specifically for this lame duck car, then I would argue that they were forced into a box to do what they did. Uh, and effectively, it is the admitted counter setup to 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 beating Hendrick Motorsports. Uh, last week, we talked about Denny Hamlin's weakness, if you can call it that. It's long run passing. So to go to the extreme lengths that they did on long runs, because this was a hell of a gamble, it supplements what he was lacking. And that was a good thing. And it was effective in this race, especially so for Martin Truex, who had the fastest long run car in this race. Any of these four teams could have conceivably won. I don't think that that's a stretch. But how the race breaks determines so much. And to me, it was evident that all of these teams bought into that line of thinking and chose to be excellent at one specific thing without really hedging for the other. Setups like that to uh, the extreme extent, uh, short runs for Hendrick, long runs for for JGR, uh, y- you know, in, in hindsight, Hendrick might have had options uh, because they were a, they were the advantage team coming into this race. They could have gone in either direction. I don't think that JGR had an option to go short run here uh, and be as competitive as they were. I think they took their best shot and the race did not break in their favor. It's, yeah, I mean, just to be, you can't just make these on a weekly basis, right? I mean, Denny Hamlin referenced it. You know, we've never been a short track or a short run team, right? He said that after the race. Uh, th- this isn't just a decision you can make and think you'll be the best at it, right? For one week as compared to the week before. I mean, these are almost, uh, cultural decisions, if you will. And by that, I mean, you know, sometimes you focus only on 750 above 550. It seems like the JGR uh, culture decision-making was, hey, we are going to be long run speed cars and short runs could beat us, but you lean into the stronger of your skills, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah. Lean into what you know, even not even JGR, uh, Hendrick with Cliff Daniels picking an old car, one that he had plenty of notes on and was familiar with he 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 went with what he was comfortable with on the biggest day of his career and that's what JGR did as well i think the only question mark was alan gustafson picking a new car off of the the assembly line at hendrick um was a bit of a head scratcher and in hindsight a, a pretty phenomenal uh misuse of funds but for JGR's point of view it was always going to be very tough to beat Hendrick, it's going to be tougher to beat them on short runs than on long runs. And, you know, Denny fessed up to that. I think Martin Truex as well has a knack for improving speed. And especially on long runs, that's been kind of the the general 
theme of his career dating back to his time at Furniture Row. He, he's always been a, a great restarter, and and he probably hasn't gotten enough credit for that over the years. But his signature is his long runs. We asked, "What are these guys going to do?" I I said, "You know, short run versus long run. You, you do you." And I think everyone here in this race did that and had some success with it to some effect. Every big game, whether it is the Super Bowl or Game 7 NBA Finals, uh, has a standout performer. Who was that in this championship race? Uh, do you Are you looking at only drivers? Do you go to the pit crew for Kyle Larson? I mean, is that fair? Because as we mentioned, without them uh, and that strength, I mean, he doesn't get out first, uh, all that. So uh, how do you want to answer that question? Uh, I mean, are you picking the pit crew? It sounds like you're picking the pit crew. Yeah, I mean, I'd go with the pit crew, right? I mean, <laughs> they fourth to first. I mean, that says it all, right? I mean, this race was done for the five team, if it breaks like it did last year or what have you. Uh, I mean, Denny Hamlin was setting up to be the game seven MVP, right? I mean, it looked like he had the, the faster car as the run went on. I would have loved to have seen him uh, catch the 19 and, and pass him for that amazing winning, you know, champion in earning it, you know, behind the wheel. But it, it's a team sport and it comes down to uh, the pit crew having to get Kyle Larson out first and then Larson getting the good restart, earning the advantageous restart, right, from whether it be box one or the front row, what have you. I mean, it all flows together and it, it, you can pinpoint it right back to the pit crew in that final pit stop. How often does a player on the losing team get picked for MVP? Pro- probably never, right? Very rare. It happens in the Super Bowl sometimes, but rare. Uh, because James small, Hmm. no one enhanced their stock, at least in my mind, more than, than he did in this race. I know the focus on Phoenix by him and, uh, the JGR 19 team, it, it did feel like overkill just to, you know, sort of punt on 50% of the schedule just to get one track, right. But it, very nearly paid off, and the car was exactly what it needed to be. Uh, Martin Truex came into this race as the single best restarter in all of the playoffs, and he lived up to the billing when restarting from the front row, even though he had a long-run car, but it was the strategy for me. They short-pitted, and I I know after the caution came out following his pit stop, it was revealed that he got off of pit road in time to effectively inherit the lead. Rick Allen in the TV booth said that he got lucky. Uh, Chase Elliott in uh, the driver's seat stated the same thing over the radio, apparently, but I'm sorry. They chose to pit first and they are the only team primed to benefit. If the caution came Mm -hmm. out, of course, the chances of that happening were slight, But one of the potential benefits of short pitting like they did was to have this scenario present itself. A lot of drivers and teams get lucky. Very few put themselves in a position to capitalize on that luck. They did. And it very nearly won them a championship. So credit, huge credit to James Small for that. Uh, And his, his last call. Uh, for the high air pressures before the final restart in in doing that, the hopes that he would have a more effective launch. There's nothing else you can conceivably do from that point. It was going to be a short run race and they needed whatever getaway speed that they could muster. And it was close. I don't think they anticipated the kind of stop that Larson's team had, but 
Truex also did not allow Kyle Larson to put more than one second on him. Uh, one wobble by Larson and Truex would have been right there. Mm. I don't know how many years that Truex has left in the sport. I think that's going to be up to him, but I'm positive James Small will have a career with another driver. And I look forward to anything and everything from this guy, because when I think back to last year, which was his first as a full-time crew chief anywhere, uh, some of his isolated decision-making was truly questionable. The Daytona road course race, I still shake my head at a lot of those choices. But that was James Small as a rookie. And this past weekend, we saw James Small as, I think, a full-blown superstar crew chief. Uh, just for this single day, his season long numbers support that as well. He was very close to being a 60 and 60 guy in terms of uh, position retention on green flag pit cycles. But uh, Sunday's race was meticulously planned. I don't think he made one errant call. He put his team in position to take advantage of good fortune. And he should be commended because uh, he and that team rose to the occasion when uh, a lot of people thought that that wasn't going to happen. It's not quite a championship, but he is the positive regression all-star. So I hope that is something of a <laughs> consolation prize, James Small. And we love what you say on the radio, especially when it's vulgar. So here we are once again, David, for the fourth and final time, we will go through our requiems and fixes for the drivers who are no longer eligible, right? We do this after every round, including the championship round. And this is my favorite thing to do here. Uh, one of the favorite things we do on the podcast, because it's so tough. I mean, we're, we're trying to nitpick the top four, right? The championship four who are the four best, uh, honestly, likely for a reason. And we're trying to find faults in there. But <laughs> when we dig a little bit, even though it can be tough, it's funny to see what we could find. And, and David, we're going to start with Kyle Larson, the champion. Uh, requiems and fixes. Tell us about his year. Tell us what he maybe can fix. And as our rule is, you can't just say, make the team faster, which would be hard to do because Kyle Lar Larson was already the fastest car in 2021. So what do you, how do you look back on Kyle Larson's year? We'll start with him. Ooh, buddy. Kyle Larson ends the 2021 season with the highest production and equal equipment rating in the cup series. That is his first time ending a year in the P one spot. It is the third time since the inception of the playoff format in 2014, that the most productive driver is also the cup series champion. He is a top two passer, a top two restarter, his team ranked as the fastest across all tracks, as you said, uh, specifically first on 550, second on 750, far and away the most uh, decorated and statistically strongest team of this year. But Superman was not without his kryptonite. And that is going to be my uh, area for the fix. During the playoffs, Larson retained his restarting position on front row restarts nearly 86% of the time, and that is just fantastic. That Kansas race comes to mind where Larson oh, yeah. had to defend that lead over and over and over. Um, that, was, that was great to watch. But he retained his position on restarts between rows two and seven just 64% of the time, and that was actually the lowest rate among championship four drivers. Hmm. 
I know that he was at the front of the field a lot this year. He broke some sort of record for laps lad. I'm sorry. I don't know which one specifically because those aren't the kinds of stats that I track. <laughs> but when you read about something like that or, or something like that happens, anticipate regression. Uh, and especially with the uncertainty of the next gen car, 40% of Larson's restarts this year were from the front row. Hmm. That is a high clip. Whew. I expect that number to shrink. So working on restarts and traffic is paramount. And it's not an admission of of a of a weakness. Look what Martin Truex did before this year. He I called him Truex the best restarter of last year. And he recognized this potential problem and changed spotters because of it. I'm not suggesting that Kyle Larson goes that far, but certainly he relied so heavily this year on clean air for his restarts. If you take that clean air away, he's a less effective restarter. So there's a high likelihood that his good restarting numbers, if he's not leading as frequently, go south next season. So the fix is to be proactive. He might want to go ahead, uh, get out ahead of it and see what he can do for himself, restarting, becoming more efficient within the throes of traffic. That is uh, an excellent observation. I'm gl so glad we do stuff like this on this podcast. Uh, well, any, not criticism, but anything to nitpick about kind of the scenario we saw in Phoenix, where if he was fourth or fifth, uh, we don't see Kyle Larson, you know, closing and driving up to, to first. Uh, maybe it was only 750 tracks. Maybe it was a product of the speed in the cars. But I feel like there were scenarios that if you got Kyle Larson 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th, uh, winning was less, far less of a prospect, even if you had some of the best car or you were the best driver of the year. Yeah, and, and that's why I, I come to the conclusion that this was just an atypical performance by Kyle Larson, because if there was anyone that I thought would absolutely just tear through anybody or or had that ability um, to pass on long runs, it would have been Larson. And he struggled to do that. The, the, the other three did that seemingly at will. And one of them I would not have expected that from at all. So there was a little bit of head scratcher. That also is the minority of his outings because the majority of them sees Larson uh, as he's been pretty much since day one in the Cup Series, an efficient, abundant passer. I don't know that that's particularly a problem, but I think if if you're Larson, if you're Cliff Daniels, if you're Hendrick, if you're Larson's fans, I think it's okay to celebrate now, you know, be glad that you won. But by all means, after the confetti is swept away, you might want to ask, what in the hell was that? Because that was not a, a perfect championship performance. It had its moments, uh, but certainly there's some room to grow. All right. Good stuff there. Kyle Larson, you are the champion. We will see you next year. Uh, I wish you good luck. Be a great champion for the sport. Next up, David, Chase Elliott, who was the defending champion all the way down to race 36 on the year. Uh, his year, only two wins, uh, 15 top fives, similar to last year, 21 top tens compared to 22 last year. Again, very similar, led nearly 100 laps at Phoenix. Uh, so right there in that championship performance, uh, he was right there again to be champion. 
But again, no oval wins this year. Only two victories, both on road courses. Not sure what to make of that. We can get into that. But uh, a pretty decent restarter in 2021, especially from the non-preferred groove. That has to help. Uh, An amazing passer, David, across the board in every metric that Motorsports Analytics has. Uh, Chase Elliott excelled in his passing, his efficiency. Uh, If he was out there with a good car, he was making that pass and driving away. So, David, his fix. Uh, When I look at all the metrics for the driver, it was really hard to find something wrong, right? I mean, he, he was the champion. He came back, made it all the way to Phoenix and led more than 100 laps in that race or, or nearly 100 laps in that race and nearly won a championship again. It was hard to find a weakness with Chase Elliott, at least for me. We'll, we'll, I'll get your uh, observations in a second. So maybe if I can't find something in the driver, maybe my fix starts with Alan Gustafson. Um, the word... Among the championship four, the nine car had the worst speed metric in best lap time on 550 tracks, at least below the other contenders. So that's one thing. Then we get to pit stops. The nine team was one of the worst culprits when it came to positions lost during green flag pit cycles on the non-drafting ovals, especially retaining a top five position during that cycle. Gustafson and his crew were near the bottom amongst all the contenders. Again, having a good run, green flag pit cycle, cycling out, not having a position you just did. Gustafson and crew, one of the worst among the contenders again. Uh, At this level, again, I'm being very nitpicky, but when you have speed, when you have driver capable of doing big things, it's the nitpicky things like losing a few positions that can probably cost you wins on non-drafting ovals, and they just weren't there for the nine car. So I'd say almost making the title the championship four without a playoff victory, that's pretty damn impressive. So I give them kudos there. But if they're going to fix something, I think it may start at the pit box and some of the decision-making and maybe tweaking the speed a little bit. I know, I know I'm not allowed to say that, David, but I'm nitpicking here. No, I, I nitpick away by all means, because when you're losing that many spots on green flag pit cycles, especially if it's the nine team, then you are then forcing the driver whose biggest strength is his long run passing Mm. to simply pass for the spots that you cost him instead of attempting to get spots that would lead to a better finish or presumably wins on an oval. So that's not nitpicking. That's actually finding the difference between winning and losing. And that's important. You know, next year, it occurs to me, very big year for Chase Elliott. It's a contract year, and I'm going to launch a lot of ships here, but he's got some leverage. His agency, uh, Pro Sport, effectively operates 2311 racing. Alan, he's no longer the number one guy in mm-hmm. Hendrick. At the very least, he shares that title. Does he stay at Hendrick, or does he look elsewhere? I mean, that's whew, that's tough. I guess it depends on how you feel about the future, right? You can't look toward the past. We have to see how the next gen cars perform. And if, I I don't know, it's, it's, it seems like a crazy question, right? Why would you leave team Hendrick, the the Yankees? Why would you leave the Yankees just because maybe you're not seen as number one or you're one B to the one a, you want to give yourself the best opportunities for the future. Right. And I would still have to believe Hendrick is on that very, very short list. Uh, Perhaps there is some ludicrous money offer, but, uh, I'm not going to let one year and a near championship performance that came down to, I mean, you even said it. I mean, they, the nine was in plenty position in Phoenix to get a, a second title leading nearly a hundred laps. 
you know, maybe uh, the little damage at the end is what cost them, but uh, it's not like there, there was this large, large difference in the team. So I'm not going to go that far. Sorry. Hey, I, Nike has money. Toyota has money. I'm just, I look, I'm just saying he's got, he's got options. If he, if he doesn't, he's not happy where of he's at. Of course he has options. He's Chase he, Elliott. He can, he can go elsewhere. Of course he has options. Chase Elliott damn near did it again, but came up just a bit short. We bid you adieu and see what you do in the next gen car. Next up, David, Denny Hamlin, Joe Gibbs racing once again, coming up short for a championship, uh, a really good year. I'm sure you'll tell us about it, but David, I have to point out two years in a row in the championship race, two years in a row, they don't lead one lap. Maybe that goes into your fixes, but you have the floor. <laughs> uh, well, that's a, that's an oddly specific thing to talk about. Uh, it's fine. Um, I think this was a far better championship shot than what he took in 2020. This was a unique season in which uh, really there was only one path for them to win this championship. We kind of touched on that earlier. And instead of uh, of worrying too much about 550 tracks, they were this consistent threat on 750 tracks. Uh, they were the fastest 750 team across the whole of the season. Denny Hamlin was the second most productive driver. And it's hard to argue with the shot that they took here. They went extreme on a long run set up at Phoenix. And that's not how the race was decided. But it's tough to argue with this team's ability all year to procure points on playoff tracks. Even though they didn't rack up wins uh, at a high level, they covered their bases really well. The weak areas, though, are what may have been exploited. Hamlin is a long-run driver. They might have the speed. He doesn't have the passing ability, so say the numbers. He's been a, a better restarter, and I'll have more on that later. But this confluence of uh, his weaknesses on long runs and the mechanical strengths on long runs created some vulnerability this year, some buffer room. They were good at the ends of races, but they did not win them. They finished well doing what I don't think totally came naturally. And I think that bit them at times. So the fix here, uh, he'll be 41 next season. He's not far removed from his peak, but also eh, it's getting a little out there. If he's not a long run passer now, I don't think it's realistic to suggest he's going to become one. Instead, I say that they should take a page out of the Kevin Harvick, Rodney Childers playbook. Hmm. Focus on speed, focus on short runs, because Hamlin, especially in traffic, is exceptional on restarts. In the playoffs between rows two and seven, he defended his position a series best 89% of the time, but his front row restarts were definitely shaky. He retained those at a 59% clip. Hamlin apparently not digging clean air uh, relative to those around him. But if they nail that next year, fast car plus efficient restarting across all positions, then any inability to get positions on long runs no longer matters. He can defend positions well. That much is certain. He can definitely arrow block with the best of them. So put him in a position that does that 
that would suit his strengths instead of relying on the weaker area of his driving repertoire. I think we've I'm, just from last year to this year, right? The the set the improvement in 750 speed. We've seen them with the ability to identify a weakness and and change it and make it a strength. Not even not even fix it. Make it a strength. Uh, is that something that can be done in the off season? What you yeah. what you propose? Yeah, I pre- I appreciate a, a driver and team that's hyper aware of themselves uh, and understanding their shortcomings, especially if those shortcomings led to defeat. Um, th- this race easily could have bounced his way, yeah. as as we've mentioned, and and would have made everything they did look even more right in hindsight. I I, I still contend that this was their best pathway to a championship, but addressing these things. With a new car and and really just letting Denny be Denny, magnify what he does well as opposed to hoping he turns around what he doesn't, that seems to be the most realistic path moving forward. And the good news is, is I think this team is cognizant of that, that they are going to make the necessary adjustments to figure out what team they want to be in the next gen era. Denny Hamlin still searching for title number one. We will see you next year with the next gen car and see what the 11 team can do. Finally, David Martin Truex Jr. Joe Gibbs racing Toyota. Uh, I I think maybe the most interesting of the four and we'll get to why because, but let's look at his year. Uh, Top fives, top tens down from 2020, but the number of wins quadrupled four to one. Uh, David, I think it was last year, right? Your fix for Martin Truex Jr. was get better at Phoenix. Well, he finished first and second, so I think he listened to you, right? They, they understood the assignment. Not too bad from the 19 team. Now, again, none of his four wins, though, came at the 550 tracks. We talked about uh, production disparity about Joey Logano a few weeks ago, right? The massive difference between how he does at the 750 tracks compared to the 550 tracks. Well, the same issue was there for Truex this year. So if I have to point out a fix and I qualify this, you'll see why in a second, I would just say consistency, right? Some sort of balance will help on, and not even balance, just up the performance on the 550 tracks. Because remember at Martinsville, it came down to one point or one position, right? If you have a little more balance, maybe you're not sweating it out as much or pulling your hair out late in the playoffs. If you get some stage wins at these 550 tracks or more victories at the 550 tracks, uh, my, a minus passer at the 750 tracks, David, which is something of a shame because we know he had a lot of speed at those 750 tracks. So maybe they could take advantage of it more if they had more speed. But, but David, I said I qualified my fix for Truex because what did you think of his season? The, such focus on the 750 tracks. And, and at the end of the day, we've said it all year. That's what matters, right? Being good at Phoenix, getting to Phoenix, being good at the 750 tracks. He got the early season wins on 750 tracks, kind of went quiet in the middle, got a win at a 750 track in the playoff, and then damn near was in position. And he finished second at Phoenix. I mean, that, that sounds like a winning formula for a championship. So what I'm getting at is, do you like that formula in terms of, does any does the rest matter as long as you hit the setup to get to Phoenix and have be in a position to win? Does it matter how you do at 550 tracks? Are they on the right path? Well, apparently they need to be one position better. Uh, I, you know, I think that there are some small things to clean up. Uh, there typically are for every team, but 
for him competing as he did at the front of the field on tracks that apparently they only cared about, there is still a little bit of breathing room. Again, early in the season, they didn't nail the initial setups at Martinsville or Phoenix. And that it, you know, it took a while for that to come back. Maybe practice helps with that. James Small seems to be one of the few crew chiefs that can make radical adjustments during a race. That's not easy. Not every crew chief can stay on top of a car like that. Um, what changes? Wow. A lot. I think with a new car for one, I think Joe Gibbs racing is going to be allowed to experiment and research as much as they care to. I mean, it was only, uh, the, the great quote from Matt Kenseth's recruitment night at, uh, JGR was it's a wonder how anyone else wins uh, based on (laughs) the, 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 the sheer amount of money they spend and what they do with it. So we could see a JGR resurgence on the 550 tracks. Certainly, I would anticipate the Toyotas being more competitive on the bigger tracks. But in terms of running back this same strategy to win a championship, and at his age, this is all that matters, I think, for Truex. Why not? Just go back and understand that, yeah, races break Maybe not to your liking, but if you want to, if you want to look back, look at Truex's last five or six years. He could easily be a three or four time champion right now, based on some weird bounces that took place in the final race. He understands how to get there. He might have been the calmest guy in Phoenix on Sunday. I'm, I'm kind of with you. It, it, it is a, it is a proven strategy that it, it, as in, it proves effective. He just needs to be a little bit better because it was not an all-encompassing car. It was just very good at the very thing that they wanted it to do. And it almost paid off. I mean, second place. And I just go back to, you know, again, your your fix back when was get better at Phoenix. And, And another team that understood the assignment first and second at Phoenix. And that's how you win a championship. Uh, they did well, just came up one position short. And I love everything you said about James Small. I look forward to what they can do next year with the next gen car in 2022. But until then, Martin Trex Jr., we bid you adieu. Another good episode, David. Another good season in the books. We're not done yet. We will get to our future plans here in a second. But don't forget, we are available on all major podcast platforms no matter your device, our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posrecpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or review. That stuff helps in spreading the word. We, of course, notice, and it is just so appreciated, uh, you know, seeing the comments and tweets you guys give us. It's awesome. We appreciate it. If you have any questions, you know we love to hear them because we love to answer them. In fact, we will dedicate next week's episode to answering your smart, intelligent questions. Reach out to us on Twitter at PosRegPod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, I know the season is over. Does that mean you're any less busy? What do you got for us? Oh, no. Why would it? Uh, this week, I'm writing on each of the championship four in some former fashion, uh, celebrating their years firstly, but also highlighting the moments that led to their overall result on the season. Uh, The first article will be on champion Kyle Larson, uh, namely what he taught us, what he reminded us about NASCAR this year. That will be posted 
Thursday on NASCAR.NBCSports.com. All right, good to know. There's still work going on in the off season, and same with me. Keep uh, keep up with my uh, social accounts, of course, at Alan Cavana on Twitter. Still doing a lot of work for Speed Sport. We have the quick hits video that comes out on Thursday that previews the racing. I know NASCAR is over, but there's still plenty of other uh, series out there going on. So we preview the upcoming weekend of racing, and then the following Monday we tell you all about all about everything that happened. You know, in a quick two two and a half minutes. So please keep up with Quick Hits and Gas and Go. Uh, the work I do for Speed Sport that's available on my Twitter and Facebook. I appreciate you following. Of course, we'll keep the conversation going. Uh, David, it has been a pleasure. We are not done yet, but I'm glad we to have another season behind us in terms of stuff to talk about and covering each race every week. And we still have some more to go this year. So looking forward to that. So for David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. We will see you next week. This is Positive Regression. Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.